As we approach verse 1 of chapter 8, we must remind ourselves of the flow of the text. All of chapter 7 is an inset parenthesis, an interruption of the chronological flow of the end time narrative. Its first half points back to a scene on earth at the beginning of the tribulation, while the second half points forward, revealing a scene in heaven that will transpire at the end of the tribulation. But, in my considered opinion, before Christ returns in power. Thus, chapter 8 picks up where chapter 6 leaves off. The breaking of the sixth seal, up till then the most terrifying consequences of the tribulation period. The centerpiece of this event is a cataclysmic earthquake in which, quote, every mountain and island were moved out of their places, end quote. That's verse 14. It is so bad that people from all social strata seek either safety or a quick death by hiding in the very quaking mountains. The very same mountains that are moving and shifting and crumbling, they go into to escape. Turn please to chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. Let's, let's remind ourselves of the flow here. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I, every time I read that, I realize they know who he is. They're afraid of him. They're running into a mountain hoping to die, expecting to die. They're running away from him, but they acknowledge who he is. He's on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Indeed. And this is followed by verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. If your version has, instead of when the Lamb, if your version has when He, well, you have the more literal translation. But we need to, the reminder that the he is the lamb. The lion of Judah, the very son of God who is running the show. He has been the one, the only one sufficiently worthy to break open the seven seals of the scroll. Let's go back and review that. Chapter 5. Revelation 5, verses 2 to 5. Uh. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. 
But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Since all of the events of the eschaton are contained within the scroll, then we know that Christ Jesus is the director. He's the orchestrator of this drama from beginning to end, which, in my mind, brings a poetic symmetry to the narrative. Christ is the one drawing this world to an end that he created in the first place. You want to lean back in your chair and just kind of cogitate on that for a while. The writer to the Hebrews describes the creation as God working through the Son. Hebrews chapter 1, please. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love that passage. Paul in Colossians paints a picture of the Son as not just the Creator, but the focal point of it all. Not only the center, but the center who holds it all together and makes it work. Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I remember when we were, well, in my class we've studied Hebrews and Colossians, both of them. And I, I remember dwelling on that do you understand what that's saying? Everything in creation, everything in the universe is being held together. It's a picture of something, it's, it's a picture of chaos wanting to break out. And Christ is holding it in place, making it all work. That's more than just the suffering servant that he was on earth. That's someone, we don't have words for that. That someone, someone who was in flesh on earth, but we know is far more than that. Well, this is what he's far more of. He's holding it all together, all of creation. And this is an important echo from Hebrews, where it says, in him all things hold together. That's all for a while. Take a break. 
In Hebrews, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. How is he holding it together? Words. Just the same way he created it. Words. These passages as well, I haven't lost track. I know we're in Revelation right now. These passages as well as those to come later in Revelation give us a proper long view of the life of the second member of the Godhead and help us realize the true depth of his character and his importance to the whole. This is all about him. In majesty and creative might, he made the universe and man within it. During the Old Testament, he took on the role of the Father's most important messenger, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel. At the close of the Old Covenant, what we call the New Testament, you, never, you no longer hear anything about the angel of the Lord. Now he is... Jesus the Christ on earth. Then in an even more subservient role, Christ Jesus came to earth as the suffering servant, the son obedient unto death, the lamb offering us not insignificantly salvation and an eternity with him. Yeah, Greg. I've missed you. <laughs> no one else interrupts. <laughs> In conjunction with no longer um, uh, the occurrence of the angel of the Lord, also in the close of the Old Covenant, you never get, thus saith the Lord, either. Mm. Because Jesus is now speaking, and he is no prophet like former prophets, that he needs to say, thus saith the Lord, he says, and so it is. Good point. Thank you. Yes. Isn't it amazing how many times you can read this book and still miss things like that? Thank you, Greg. Good, good point. Finally, we find in him still in the role of the Lamb as he inaugurates the final days of the earth. Who was it that was able to open the scroll? The Lamb of God. Not King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lamb. But soon, in just seven brief years, he will be reintroduced in his full majesty and might as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now what we have before us is a dramatic suspension. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's a common technique in cinema. I'm sure you've, you've seen it, heard it. Right before a huge explosion or climactic visual effect for the director to pull, pull out all the sound on the soundtrack. Just about a second of dead air. Then boom! The dead air maximizes the impact of the explosion. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. This is precisely how the Lamb orchestrates the introduction of a series of seven trumpets lying within the seventh seal. All sounds in heaven, all worship, all praise, all hearing of prayers, 
all speaking and revelations, are silenced for about 30 minutes to build anticipation for the approaching disasters. And in, in the aspect of time of heaven, 30 minutes is what? Nothing. But if you have to sit through it, 30 minutes is a long time. Utter silence. The preacher gets up here, says a prayer, and then doesn't open his mouth for 30 minutes. It's a long time. Albert Barnes writes this, the most simple and obvious interpretation is likely to be the true one, and that is that it refers to silence in heaven as expressive of the fearful anticipation felt on opening the last seal that was to close the series and to wind up the affairs of the church and the world. Nothing would be more natural than such a state of solemn awe on such an occasion. Nothing would introduce the opening of the seal in a more impressive manner. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. From this text, we cannot identify these angels. These should not be confused with the seven spirits of God from Revelation 5-6, and they are no doubt different angels from the seven who will be later pouring out the bowls of wrath. Yet we're given a clue in the phrase, quote, who stand before God. That's not insignificant. In Luke 1, 19, the angel answered and said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Luke 1, 19. This suggests that the seven are archangels, angels of the presence, such as Michael and Gabriel, who stand before the throne of God. I take that literally to mean when everyone else's face is on the floor before the throne of God, they're standing. Now, as I said that in in, from this text, we do not know much about them. But in fact, seven archangels are identified by name in the Pseudepigraphus book of Enoch. Sidebar. Pseudepigrapha are early writings that were not included in either our canon or even the Apocrypha, which was ultimately removed from our canon but it still remains in the Catholic canon. The word pseudepigrapha comes from the Greek word pseudo, meaning false, and epigraphine, meaning to inscribe or write falsely. So there's kind of a dub double negative going on there. It's really false. Thus, I include the following because it's interesting, as do most scholars and commentators discussing this passage. They always bring up First Enoch. First fake news. First fake news, yes. Well, 
Yeah, we, yeah, that's what the name means, but. And, and I, this is not scripture. This is not scripture. It's just interesting. But that doesn't mean that everything in the pseudepigrapha is absolutely fantastical. It's just not reliably authentic for our canon. Okay. And these are the names of the holy angels who watch mankind. Uriel, one of the holy angels who is over the world and over Tartarus. Raphael, one of the holy angels who is over the spirits of men. Raquel, one of the holy... Raquel Welch, I, I keep thinking of Raquel. Raquel, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance on the world of the luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels, to wit, he that is set over the best parts of mankind and over chaos. That must be here. Uh, Sarakel, one of the holy angels who is set over the spirits who sin in the sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who is over paradise and the serpents and the cherubim. And Remiel, one of the holy angels whom God set over those who rise. First Enoch twenty verses one to eight. Now, while we cannot accept the preceding text as scripture, it is true that. The original text of verse 2, our verse 2, not, not first Enoch, includes the definite article, the, which tells us, to, tells us that this is an official, established group. It's the seven angels that holds a special place before the throne of God. So, that there are seven angels, that's from God's word. That we have their names and their job descriptions, that's not Holy Scripture. Each of these select angels is handed a trumpet, salpinges. We might think of the traditional ram's horn, but Israel had several types of trumpet, some of which were hammered metal, used at the temple, etc., these horns were used to call men to battle, as in Nehemiah 4.20, to throw an enemy into a panic, to summon worshipers, to make celebration, as during the Feast of Trumpets, Numbers 29.1, or to declare that the day of the Lord has arrived, as in Joel 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Yes, Isla and Dennis, I know that's a song. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, Joel 2, 1-2. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. We cannot say with certainty whether this is another angelic being or, as some say, is actually Christ Jesus. 
His work here as an advocate of prayers leads some to claim it is Christ. But the Greek behind the word, quote, another is alos, means, and that means another of the same kind. If it was a different kind, it would be hetera, as in heterosexual. So this means in this context that the one in verse 3 is of the same kind as the previous seven. There's the first seven, ver seven angels. Here's another angel of the same kind. So contra Wolverd, I incline toward it being, as the text states, another angel, not Christ. Throughout the Revelation, Christ is referred to as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The, the, he's, he's referred to as the Christ. He's not referred to as an angel that, that I can discern. He's referred to by his divine titles. Wolverd does say this, this is a beautiful picture of the prayers of the saints as seen from heaven. In the Old Testament order, the priests would burn incense upon the altar of incense, and the smoke would fill the temple or the tabernacle and would then ascend to heaven. Incense was symbolic of worship and prayer and a reminder that intercession to the Lord has the character of sweet incense. And this is pictured for us in verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angels' hands. Verse 5. I find verse 5 fascinating. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Originally, these censers or fire pans were made of hammered bronze, Numbers 1639. Later, however, for Solomon's temple, they were made of pure gold, 1 Kings 750, as here in heaven's temple. The Greek word here translated censor is labanaton. Literally, the word means frankincense, which is the gum of the libanus, or frankincense tree, which was the key component of the incense burned on the altar. Although it's not stated explicitly, it's assumed by most that the prayers of all the saints offered in verses 3 to 4, were similar to those cried out by the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6.10, remember, where they cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Not unlike what Habakkuk cried out. Why aren't you going to do something about this, God? Sick them. 
Thus, what the angel does in verse 5 is taken by most as God's answer to these prayers. They've cried out for judgment and vengeance, and his response is that the time is ripe for just that. Here's a preview, and he throws the coals down onto the earth. They've cried out for... Here's the scene. The angel is given, by whom we don't know, incense which he adds to the glowing fire on the altar. He does not add the prayers, but adds the sweet incense to the prayers. Both are wafted into, as we might say, the nostrils of God. I'm guessing that God doesn't have nostrils, but he can smell incense somehow. Putting action to God's unspoken or at least unrecorded answer, the angel scoops out of the altar some of the burning coals, not the prayers, just the fire, and throws it onto the earth. Barnes writes this, The new emblem, therefore, is the taking of coals and scattering them abroad as a symbol of the destruction that was about to ensue. It's a preview. It's a foretaste of what's about to happen. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Alan F. Johnson refers to this as a theophany, a word that Pastor Jeremy used this morning, a physical manifestation of the presence of God and one not dissimilar to how he presented himself at Mount Sinai. Turn, please, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 17. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And we remember, it goes on to say, and don't do this to us again. You go, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to go through this again. I can well imagine. Now, verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Here again, I sense a, sense a dramatic anticipatory pause. Verse 6 really isn't necessary except to build tension for the coming events. It doesn't really move anything forward. It just says, get ready. As we're now preparing to do battle with the seven trumpets, this is a good time to remind ourselves of the ground we've covered so far. This study began by establishing that the last things, the eschaton, technically began in Bethlehem. In our first chart, we designated the starting point of the church age at Pentecost with the giving of the Holy Spirit to all believers. 
We currently remain in the church age with the next milepost on the timeline being the rapture of the church, and we have no idea when that will be. In chart six, we establish that the timeline splits at the rapture. Believers, both dead and alive, rise into heaven with Christ. In resurrected, glorified bodies, while the rest of humanity remains on earth to suffer the trials of the tribulation, or what is termed Daniel's 70th week. In chart 7, I made the case for Daniel's 70 weeks beginning in 457 BC with Artaxerxes' authorization for Ezra to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. We traced those 70 weeks through Christ's crucifixion, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, the church age, which Daniel did not see, the rapture, and finally the seven years of the tribulation, which is Daniel's 70th week. In chart eight, we presented the seals, trumpets, and bowls of the tribulation period as a nested series of events. That is, everything is contained in the scroll of the seals. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of wrath. Next, we spent several weeks examining in chart nine the details of the seven seals. Bah. Next week, we bid goodbye to that. Along with the first of several parenthetical visions set outside the narrative stream. Thus, we're now ready to launch into the seven trumpets, which, like the seals, begins with four events that are set apart from the even more traumatic and, in this instance, bizarre events of the last three. And I was reminded this week in my preparation how pick just about any component of the end times, the eschaton, anything. Just close your eyes and point at something and do, a, do, a, a, do an internet search on that, anything. You will find most, some of the most strange and varied explanations imaginable. That's part of this study. I can stand here and say, okay, this is the way it is. You can go do a search on any of those and you'll come up with a basket full of different opinions. Next week, our class will be shortened because of the business meeting. So what I'd like to do is use the time next week, the time we have left after time of prayer, I'll hand out and introduce the next chart, and there's a lot going on on it, and I'll just, just give you a guided tour through that chart before we begin digging in, because there's a lot going on. So that's, that's what we'll be doing next week, and then after that, the, the week after that, we'll start digging into the seven trumpets. Now, any thoughts? We have some time here. Any thoughts, questions?
If there are no questions, everybody in this room can help move chairs. Yes, ma'am. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stupid Mike. He's right there. Yeah. I had a note in my Bible on um, eight one that said when it said there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I put in there. I don't know where what who gave the message on it, but why? Because God was going to bring up the prayers of the saints so he could hear them. I thought that was, it, it kind of hitched onto what you said that goes into yeah, three. Yeah, as, 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 as long as we understand that God does not require silence to hear our prayers. I but, would agree. But, but yeah, with the text that follows. The text that follows said, it, you know, it, was given to him that he might add it to the prayers. Well, mm -hmm. that I to me that meant that he was going to listen to him. Yes, but it's it's just not the only time he listens to them. I agree. He's not like me; it needs total silence to be able to think. Yeah. What else? Well, we all get to move chairs. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your word. We, we, every time we look, every time we read a passage that describes your environment, we are in awe of who you are and humbled by the fact that this great God cares enough for us, who loved us enough to send his son to the cross so that we might have the privilege of living with him. As your word says, why did he love us? The reason? Because he loved us. That's all. So we are humbled in your presence and we are grateful for your compassion and grace and your willingness to share with us all of your word and your spirit to help us understand it. Thank you, Father. We thank you for this time and the blessings we derive from it. In Jesus' name, amen.